0: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Across the Dinaverse, Searching for the heart and soul of America, one diner at a time. How you doing? I'm John Murphy, writer and producer on the science and technology series, Innovation Nation. And hosted by the one and only Mo Rocca from CBS Sunday Morning and PBS's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Innovation Nation airs Saturday mornings on CBS. I hope you check it out and check your local listings for airtime. And now I tour the country talking to people over burgers and fries and pies about their lives, where they live, love, and work, and how they feel about the good old USA. Now, the whole point of this podcast is to reveal, through casual conversations with a myriad of people from all walks of life, how we're much more connected than we think, and much more similar than we are different. The next few series of episodes are going to take a bit of a different approach. I'll still be talking to people in diners, but it'll be focused on one topic, a murder that took place 50 years ago. So there's a painting in the Art Institute of Chicago called American Gothic, and maybe the image comes to mind. It was painted by the artist Grant Wood in 1930, and shows a dour-looking man and woman standing in front of what's called a carpenter-gothic farmhouse with a distinct upper window. The actual house Wood used is still standing in Eldon, Iowa, by the way. And the man in the painting wears glasses and a black jacket over his coveralls, and he's holding a pitchfork. The woman looks sullen, almost on the verge of tears. People thought it was a farmer and his wife, but according to Wood, the woman is actually the farmer's daughter, which is a key point here. The painting became an instant sensation because its ambiguity prompted viewers to speculate about the figures and their story. It's always about the story. Wood intended it to convey a positive image of rural American values, offering a vision of reassurance at the start of the Great Depression. Now, the word gothic can also refer to something mysterious, grotesque, even horrific. And this story falls under those themes and paints a much different portrait of rural American values in southwest Nebraska during the so-called swinging 70s. Now, you might be wondering why I care so much about a murder case that happened 50 years ago. The honest reason? I'm kind of like Jake Gyllenhaal's character in the movie Zodiac. Robert Graysmith, the man who wrote the book about San Francisco Zodiac serial killer and became obsessed, I mean literally obsessed, almost destroyed his life trying to solve the case. And I'm trying to figure out how and why normal, everyday people from my small little hometown, without so much as a parking ticket on their criminal records, could spiral down into destructive patterns of behavior like codependency, obsession, and not only murder but butchery. The second reason? I crossed paths with the killer. Yeah, I did. And when you're just 12 years old, that kind of sticks with you. And for the first time, you will hear the voices of those involved in this nightmare. This is American Gothic, Love and Murder, Part 1. I moved to McCook, Nebraska, from El Paso, Texas, with my mom, dad, and baby sister, Pam, in June of 1970. I was nine, born in California, but my father worked as a manager for a major retailer, the J.C. Penney Company, and he would get transferred to run different stores across the country. McCook was the biggest town for about 70 miles in any direction, and the J.C. Penneys there was one of the big anchor stores in town. McCook is the seat of Red Willow County, Nebraska, and is both a farming and ranching community. It's also a stop on the Burlington Northern train line between Chicago and Denver. There's even manufacturing with a rubber hose plant that's been in operation there since 1971. In 1973, about 8,300 people lived in McCook. Today, it's less than 7,500. To the west is Hitchcock County, and that includes the villages of Culbertson and Trenton. To the north... Is frontier county, with the towns of Stockville and Curtis. Major portions of this story take place in all three locations. Now, 1973 was not a good year for a cook when it came to mysterious deaths. On the evening of April 25th, firemen rushed to the home of Ida Fitzgibbons in response to a call from a neighbor reporting smoke and flames. When they arrived, they found the body of the 80-year-old woman lying near a hole in the floor. She was nearly nude and her lower extremities were burned. Her left leg was broken just above the ankle. A clothesline was wrapped three times around her neck and knotted. And she had been stabbed in the chest with a knife that remained lodged in her body. It was a very controversial police investigation that divided the community because, in the end, Ida Fitzgibbons' death was declared a suicide. In December of that year, the Nebraska State Patrol backed up that finding with their own investigation. I'll post the report details on my Patreon page, as well as other exclusive documents used for this series of podcasts, at patreon.com backslash That's patreon.com backslash dinerverse. During the summer of 73, some extremely vulgar messages began to show up on local road signs outside of town in park shelters, and in public bathrooms. They referenced a woman named Kay Hine, a single mother of two children. The messages were hand-painted and read, Kay Hine is a good fuck. Kay Hine will fuck anyone for $10. Kay Hine, hot ass. Then listed her phone number right there on the sign. Now this obviously not only upset Kay and her immediate family, but it also shocked the community. A story about the signs appeared in the local paper the McCook Daily Gazette. The Willow County Sheriff's Office was alerted, and so was the State Patrol. An investigation was launched, which lasted several months, and I'll come back to this part of the story in a future episode, because there's really a lot more to it, and it leaves you wondering about the real motives of the investigating officers at the time. Kay Hines' parents... Edwin and Wilma Hoyt, who ran a long-held family farm south of Culbertson in Hitchcock County, were certainly concerned about their daughter's situation and tried to help. They'd been out of town for nearly a month, visiting one of their sons who was in the service and stationed in Germany. They returned to McCook on Thursday, September 20th. On Sunday, the 23rd, the Hoyts hosted a picnic lunch for family members, including Kay and her young daughters, Brenda and Angela, along with Kay's sister and brother-in-law, Donna and Owen Elmer, and their family. The purpose was to catch up and share stories and pictures of their trip to Europe. Kay describes that afternoon during a deposition recorded by criminal defense attorney Richard Hove.
1: We went out there. I was going to have everybody in here, but Mom said no. She wanted to have everybody out there because she had the pictures and, and stuff and everything for everybody and, and, and that. And so... She fixed ham and potatoes and whole works. We had a great big dinner, and we went out, and Don and would come, and we ate, and everybody went in and sat down and had one of the nicest times I ever remember of having. The kids didn't even fight. I mean, you know, kids. I mean, usually they have an argument or two, and they didn't. I don't remember of them having any argument or, or anything. It was just... Everybody sat down and was interested in seeing the pictures and and listening to them, And they sat down and we didn't even watch the ball game that day. We looked at pictures from Germany. You was looking at the picture, while You was watching the ball game. And it was just great. And then we got up and gone and on and left. And and I was getting ready to leave. And it was Angie and Brenda? Angie was going to start taking music lessons. So Mom said, "Well, she had some of these books out there that us kids took music lessons out of, and it'd be." It'd be a lot cheaper if I could just go ahead and use them instead of buying $1.75, $2 starter music books when they're the same thing. The girls were sitting there playing on the floor. Daddy went in and laid down on the bed. He says, where's my big kiss so Grandpa can take a nap? I can't take a nap without a kiss. Brandy jumped up and went in and kissed him giving gave him a big love. And then he says, well, I says where's my other one? And Angie got up and did the same thing. Because uh, I wanted to get home so I could, kids could do dishes and. That four Walt Disney come on, come home and I heard him oh, again. Dad was supposed to come in and help me see about getting a car and was gonna pick up the pickup.
2: Was there anything said during the day at all about anything that happened the, in the, journey, in the journey, Anything said about
1: and Nina? There was nothing said about Harold and Nina that day. We went out in the car and just get in the car and, and I don't know, mom. Asked me how I was getting along and everything. I mean, just, I don't know, just talk, just, I guess. And I said, well, everything was getting along pretty good. That, uh, I need to get my car. And I said, I hope everything settled down a little bit. So if I did get a car, it wouldn't be ruined, too. And I said, you saw what happened in the mailbox. Mom said, well, she got everything. was pretty settled down, didn't I? And i on this conversation like this. And uh, so I hoped it was it's just sometimes I said, maybe we can get back to just normal and all this nonsense had stopped. And that was that was all. What had happened with the mailbox? It
2: had
1: been wrote on just like the signs.
0: The Hoyt's personal mailbox had also been painted with disparaging words about their daughter. The people Kay mentioned were close friends, Harold and Enan Oakes who lived in McCook. And Harold Noakes describes how they met.
3: When did you recall about when you first met her?
2: I would say probably seven years
3: ago or so, seven, eight years ago. And where did you meet her? Mm, that I couldn't say. Her husband worked at the same place I did, and I can't say exactly uh, where we met that place. When you first met uh, K. Hine, was she married? And you know her husband's name? Uh, Dwayne. And uh, how did you get acquainted with each other? We went places together, some
2: uh, four of us. And we went fishing some, and they went to dances
3: a few times. Now, after you um, got to know the Heinz and spent some time with him, did you and Kay uh, become intimate with each other? Yes.
0: Kay Hine had been having a long-term affair with the married Noakes, and Kay Hine's parents knew all about it.
2: Did you then try to call them on Monday?
1: Yes. I always called folks. I, if they don't call, we call there. And Angie, that morning, well, kids get up and call Grandpa and Grandma. I mean, that was just something they did. I and mean, if they didn't call, kids would always call. And they didn't answer, and I thought, like, well, gee, they got around early this morning, you know maybe they're in town already and so I didn't think too much about it at that time and because I knew they were coming to town to get the pickup daddy wanted to do that and and he do some stuff they'd just gotten back from Germany and everything and, and he wanted to get the pickup and get the drill going for to plant wheat and uh, and about I don't know about noon I thought well gee you know they hadn't come in or anything I was kind of wondering where they were so I called down and asked if, if Edwin had been in yet, and he said, well, no, they were expecting him. I said, well, as soon as he comes in, uh, why don't you have him give me a call? He said, let's go home. And so I just come on home because I figured, well, if they didn't find me there. They'd find me here at the house. Went back to work. Never called, never called. But, Gee, you no, know, well, it rained. Well, maybe dad, you know, maybe, maybe they just decided to do something else, and he just hadn't gotten to town yet or hadn't done this. So then, hadn't heard anything, hadn't heard anything, and I thought it was getting kind of funny because when Dad says he's going to do something, he does this. Then Tuesday morning, I was real upset. I called I, real early that morning. It was about 6.30, I tried to call. No answer. Or It was early that morning, I tried to call. I think I called Owen down, I couldn't get Donna home, and I called Owen down station. It must have been between 9 and... 10 somewhere, it was early that morning because I couldn't get a hold of anybody and I knew something was wrong then because the folks hadn't called me, weren't home or anything. And I called Virginia, the neighbor, because once in a while when it storms, well, they knock some wire or something over the folks' out and didn't work right and sometimes their phone will go out and the other phones will be in. So I called Virginia and I said, Virginia, I can't get a hold of the folks. And I said, I was kind of wondering when it was coming in. I said, do you know... If the folks are home or not and she said well she didn't know and I said well I just wonder if the phones out of order and I can't get a hold of them she said well she'd go over in town and I said well if you do I said would you have her call me she says okay yeah she, she'd do that so she went over and, and looked around the one she come back and called and she said okay she says I went over and she said there's not a soul around she says there's the one bedroom window's open and, and that but she says there's no car and she says the pickup's gone too I says, well, yeah, I knew the pickup was gone because that's what I was driving. And she says, oh, she says, no, the car isn't there. And she says, there's no tracks either. She says, other than mine. And I says, oh, really? And uh, she says, it seems like it's all locked up and everything, but she says, there's no, no tracks or anything. And I says, okay, but I says, I'm kind of worried they might be out in the pasture. I says, where, where can I get a hold of Donna? I think she had to go to ranchers anyway, that's where I got her with some paneling. Rancher. I said, Maybe we should fly over that pasture to see if you don't know, see anything. Oh, she go home and talk to Owen first. And so then she left and and by God, if she didn't need more leave there than pretty soon to her hear her come back up the stairs. I don't know she just got drove around the block or even got out of the parking lot or what. Anyway, here she come back up the stairs and says, Why don't you just keep charming? She'd just fly out over there now. She went out and flew over the place and didn't find anything. And then She went on home, and then that afternoon, about 4 o'clock, she came back up and we drove out home. There was nothing, it was just like, it was just nothing.
2: You and Don out
1: there. Yes, that Tuesday. And then I think you know the rest of it.
0: The Hoyt children notified authorities. Nebraska State Patrol Detective Sergeant Jack Sexton recalls what happened.
2: Lieutenant... Uh, Grebe called and said that they had a request of McCook that the uh, Hoyts were missing and would I go down and check on it. Well they were grown people and uh, I went down there and and talked to their daughter and son-in-law and they just said they can't figure out where mom and dad went I said, well, about it. all we could do was put it out on the radio at the local states. is because there's no crime at that time. They were just gone. At right. It. And when they just got back from Germany a week before, I thought, well, maybe they took off and went to Denver or something and didn't tell their children. And so that's the way we had to start it off, with just missing people. and then. Uh, the car was found at the hospital, and I went down and processed the car and didn't find anything unusual, but I sent uh, evidence into our lab to be examined for something wrong, but that front seat was awful close to the driving wheel for a normal man, I thought, but again. Uh,
0: I didn't know why. Edwin and Wilma Hoyt were missing. I mean, this case is unnerving and shocking, and we've only begun to scratch the surface of what was really going on. I wanted to get insight from a clinical forensic psychologist to help explain what makes people get into situations that they wouldn't even think of doing under quote-unquote normal circumstances, whatever that is. And I found one at the University of Nebraska. Dr. Mario Scalora, PhD. He's a professor of psychology, a forensic specialist, and the director of the university's Public Policy Center. I met up with Dr. Scalora in Lincoln at the Highway Diner on Nebraska Parkway. So, Dr. Scalora, first of all, what is forensic psychology?
4: Forensic psychology is a field of psychology that deals with the interaction of humans and the law. So... Clinical psychologists like myself who deal with the assessment and treatment of mental illness are working with legal systems to provide assessments, treatment or information, opinions related to how someone relates to a legal standard. For example, uh, very often our work is seen in the criminal area, doing assessments for whether someone was insane at the time of the offense, whether their mental illness and their behavior relates to an insanity standard. There is often some work done at the civil level, whether someone needs to be placed in protective custody because of their mental illness or their substance abuse. A lot of the work I do is in the area of risk assessment and looking at individuals who either have committed crimes or at risk of engaging in threatening or violent behavior. How do we mitigate that risk? now that that individual has come to people's attention because of behavior.
0: Now, Dr. Scalora can't comment directly about the people involved in this case because he didn't treat them, nor was he part of the original criminal investigation. But he does offer insight about what can drive someone to kill.
4: You know, typically murder happens over like one of five things. And we used to call them the five L's. Uh, There was an FBI profiler who said this. But one is love. If someone were to go after your daughter you yes. know no second guessing same with my kids yep. right yep the other is lust you know sexual yep. sexual motivation is a huge motivation so if someone had a prior relationship with someone that was intimate that that would be certainly a major motivator even not only during the intimacy the time when the relationship was intimate But even after the fact, when you lose it, and now you're resentful, you're losing it. That's why we see in stalking cases, when intimacy had been involved, the risk of violence when stalkers engage toward former intimates or people like that in their way, the risk of violence goes up dramatically.
0: Which is exactly what happened, I think, in this particular case. It was lust, love, relationships, confusion of that, the obsessive nature of it. One party trying to control the other party, one party trying to save her husband. Actually, you know, the husband is kind of in the middle where both women were fighting for him to make a decision on who you're going to stay with.
4: And, and, you know, and he's not the victim here. I know you're not framing him as. The right. No, here. I'm not trying to. But no, I, but but it's interesting that he would he could. You know, somebody could portray themselves that way in that relationship. You know, and and by the way, re- people don't murder over it, it, over just one motive, right? When you think of something that dramatic, or and when you think about major violence, we often layer motives. And to quote Shrek, it's like a parfait, not an onion, right? Everybody likes parfaits.
0: <laughs> to quote Shrek. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: Is that part of the UNL psychology department well, curriculum? You know, I, I've used that. And, <laughs> quote and Shrek. And people tra- attention. Most people have seen Shrek. And if they haven't, they can Google the scene. Okay. When Eddie Murphy talks about parfaits, right? Because <laughs> um, we often take, think about multiple layers as onions. But nobody likes to think about onions right. as much as parfaits. But if you think about layering like a parfait, um, where you could have different strengths to a layer, You could have the sexual attraction, that piece. You could also have anger. You mentioned resentment, the livid anger. You deprived me of something or you're putting me in a bad spot or I thought I owned this or I thought I controlled this or fill in all the blanks and you have the anger on top of it. And it's a personal anger. It is something where they feel like either they are personally being targeted or threatened or that something important to them is being harmed injured lost and something they care or something they care about needs to be protected you have that other layer going in there and what most people don't think about is yeah, you, know, you there, we often think of crimes as crimes of passion right because we hear often, that term all the time right there's anger you're doing it because you have to be wound up to do it and there are certainly those circumstances A lot of crimes are also done with matter of fact affect, matter of fact emotion, because I am committed to taking care of this. You've hurt me. I feel justified in my grievance towards you, and I'm resigned to any outcome because you crossed the line with me, and I need to take care of business. Right? So you to feel justified within myself within yourself, and so as I'm so to do that. You have to be sort of matter-of-fact, right? If you're going to... That's called rationalization, though, isn't it? You could rationalize that to some degree, right? You're justifying it. So, you you know, you're focusing... I was talking about the emotions, but you're right. talking about the thought processes. Yeah. And we know thoughts and emotions relate to each other. if If I'm very angry at you, I could just stay angry at you and nothing happens. Just maybe, you know what, I'm not going to... Turn on the channel where your show is on, or I'm just going to ignore you if I have to deal with you, or I'm just going to call you a name and walk away. If I feel like I have to do something more than that, I have more justification going on. And that's a rationalization, right? I'm not only am I justified in seeing that I have a grievance, you've caused me harm. You know, dude, you, you've done this to me. You've, You've done something, and, and my perception of that may not always be rational, may not be accurate, mm-hmm. but it's my lens, my lens judging that. You could look at me and say, "Dude, this doesn't fit," right? And or what? Because this hell? is where the emotions cloud conscious thought. Well, or and we we talk ourselves into those situations. We we give ourselves permission to do that. Someone standing out of that circumstance would look at that and go, How the hell did you get yourself into this? What were you thinking? Right. They are thinking, Hey, I was harmed. I am not, I'm justified in believing I was harmed. And by the way, I'm justified in causing you harm or taking revenge or blank, blank, blank because of what you've done to me or what you're doing to someone I care about.
0: And by the way, your explanation is taking, you know, a couple of minutes to define all this is happening inside the human body in split seconds.
4: Yes, over periods of time. Because every time you build that resentment, right. you think about it, you're reinforcing those thought patterns. And they become ingrained in the head. You are ingrained, it gets hardwired. Yeah. And so my coming to you saying, Why are you so mad at so and so? You need to chill out. May not always help. A lot of times when you're at that elevated state of anger, it doesn't. But you may not look angry. You might just be resentful as heck. Right. You might be able, you you might be wound tight, but you're not going to necessarily be, you know, red-faced or screaming or elevated in your anger, You but you it'll be obvious you're angry.
0: As we take a dive into the layers of the emotional parfait Dr. Scalore talks about, you'll start to see the seeds of resentment, anger, even rage, and how they were planted between Kay Hine and the people she chose to get close to. Edwin and Wilma Hoyt had been missing for about ten days. Their car, a 1971 Plymouth Fury, was found parked in front of the old St. Catherine's Hospital. Then on Wednesday, October 3rd, Local farmer Dean McQuiety was fishing along the Medicine Creek Dam and Harry Strunk Lake in Frontier County, about thirty-four miles northeast of McCook. A strong wind pushed waves across the reservoir and up onto the rocks that covered the dam. McQuiety spotted something in the water. Looking closer he saw a human foot bobbing against the rocks. Alarmed, McQuiety looked round, saw no one and nothing out of the ordinary, so he pulled the foot out of the water, leaving it on the rocks. He soon discovered other body parts, including a severed arm. McQuiety hurried to inform Lake Supervisor Tim Jackson of the Grizzly find. A call was made to the Frontier County Sheriff's Office. Lanny Rob Lee was sheriff at the time. I spoke with him at the Anvil Bar and Grill in Curtis, Nebraska. How old were you when the body parts started floating up in, in this lake?
5: Oh, 28, I think. 28 years old. Yeah.
0: Had you ever seen anything like that before in your life? No. You never? What's it like, and I'm just curious, from a human standpoint, what's it like to see a human body butchered the way it was butchered?
5: Well, it was was a pretty interesting situation to start with. When I got the phone call that there was a human arm at the lake— I thought probably a bone from an Indian grave that washed out. Mm. And I drove to the lake, and when I got there, there was a fellow standing there casting his pole out into the water and reeling it in. And I pulled up, and he pointed to the ground. And when I went over there, there was a human flesh on the arm laying there.
0: And the hand was still attached.
5: The hand was attached,
0: And it was butchered at the elbow.
5: Yes, it was. And was it like bloated and blue and that type of thing? Oh no, no, it was. It was. It looked like a A human. Yeah, regular hand, arm. Wow. And uh, so so that was how the 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 very first piece of it was in my possession. Let's put it that way.
0: And how did that hit you? How did that affect you? And what was what immediately went through your mind?
5: Well, obviously, you would know that there was. Had been a crime committed, (laughs) and I hadn't heard about anybody being murdered in the area, anything of the kind, so it was really a start-from-scratch kind of a deal. At that time, because the Hoyts were reported missing from
0: Hitchcock County— right. And you, did not, you were not aware that they were even reported missing
5: at that time. I was not aware of it. You know, I didn't have any idea that there were missing people from McCook or from that area.
0: Edwin and Wilma Hoyt had been missing at that time for 10 days. They disappeared on Sunday evening, September 23rd, 1973. You got the call on October the 3rd, 10 days later, to go out and see what was happening at the lake. The family of the Hoyts... Filed a missing persons report with the Nebraska State Patrol, the McCook Police, the Redwood County Sheriff's Office, the Hitchcock County Sheriff's Office, but nobody called you.
5: That's correct. Well, we're kind of out of the out of the way, you know, on the north part of the county, and and county sheriffs don't necessarily,
0: you know, call other county sheriffs just to let them know what's happening in their counties.
5: Just a missing person situation, right. you know. There, that was uh, not a, a big item. Until now. <laughs> right, until now.
0: And when did you realize that it was this missing farm couple, the Hoyts?
5: As soon as we found this, I, I go up to my vehicle and we I start picking up on everything that's going on around as far as the missing people from Culbertson goes. On the radio chatter. That's right. And that's when we... When we knew that we were something serious had happened, pretty yeah, something serious <laughs> had happened, all right, and we were convinced that that was probably what we were w- working with. It was the the two people that were missing over I don't know, probably fifty miles away from where we were at.
0: There's kind of a weird triangulation. So McCook, Nebraska, is is the county seat of Red Willow County. Eleven miles due west is Colbertson. Right, which is where the Hoyts lived, a little bit south of Culbertson on a farm. Right. And then the bodies were found roughly 35, 40 miles away in Medicine Creek Dam, which is called Harry Strunk Lake. That's right. And that's to the east of McCook.
5: That's correct.
0: And then also in Frontier County, which you had the jurisdiction of.
5: Right in the corner of Frontier County where I had the jurisdiction. That's right.
0: So you became the lead investigator immediately at that moment, not right?
5: That's correct.
0: So what was going through your mind, if you can recall? When you like started processing this in your head.
5: Well, it's been a long time ago, but you know, <laughs> when you're in law enforcement, you realize that these things can happen. We just started working back through what did happen and why there was uh, so much play on what was going on about these particular people up and down the line over there. The word was out about Kay and some relationship with these people. The first thing that I did was I, Owen Elmer... And his wife, Donna, we had Kay come to her their place, and, and I interviewed her in the basement of their house.
0: So you're in the basement of Kay Hines' sister's home. What was your take on meeting this woman who seemed to be somewhat at the center of what was going on in this
5: case? It didn't take long to understand what the situation was, uh, and, and she told me about her relationship with these people. Harold and Ina Noakes. That's correct. And she also told me that uh, she didn't want to continue the relationship as long as Harold's wife was involved.
2: Had Harold ever made any statements to you about you and he uh, living together after you got divorced? No. Did you ever thought
1: if he had ever left his wife? Yes.
0: Harold's wife, Ina Noakes, had been good friends with Kay. But things took a turn for the worse, which I'll discuss in the next chapter of this true crime series. But of course, the podcast is called Across the Diniverse, and as I mentioned, I met former Frontier County Sheriff Lanny Rob Lee at the Anvil Bar and Grill in Curtis, and I got the lowdown on the place from owner-operator Marvin Fisher. Marvin, first of all, thank you very much for letting me come here into the Anvil Bar and Grill in beautiful Curtis, Nebraska. My question for you is, how in the hell? Do you keep a big place like this open in a town of
3: only 939 people? Um, well, we're supported fairly well by the community here. Uh we fill these rooms fairly frequently. All right, what do you, what are you known for? Uh prime rib. We smoke prime rib uh, and uh, serve it every Saturday night.
0: Does this prime rib come from cattle that you own?
3: I don't own them, but uh, they're they're
0: local cattle. Local, so this yeah. is uh this is literally farm to table here. Basically,
3: yes. Or from the truck in the back to the table. <laughs> from, the, from the truck to the table.
0: <laughs> How did you come to name it the anvil?
3: Through a little bit of research about the local history, um, we came to understand that the first business in this area was an, a blacksmith shop. Oh, that makes sense. Because a blacksmith uses an anvil to form and shape the horseshoe. Yes. And I would assume an anvil and a blacksmith shop would have been a lot like a convenience store now. That would have been a necessity at the time. When was Curtis formed? I think the town has been here about 150 years. Is
0: it the Easter City?
3: What is it? What's it called? Yes, the we are in Nebraska's Easter City. The Sunday before Easter every year they do an Easter pageant here. Um, it's a, it's a passion play. Local people in costume put on scenes from uh, from Christ's trials and uh, then is up to his crucifixion and resurrection. Do you participate in this? I have not. I'm a participant in the audience.
0: I see. I think because I think you would be a great camel in the <laughs> I barnyard, probably would. or a bovine. You know, stick close to what you know, right? Right. De- depending
3: on the scene, I could probably play either.
0: <laughs> How much do you charge for a vodka soda here at uh, Anvil Barn Grill?
3: Three dollars, American. Did he say
0: three dollars? <laughs> Did he? Three dollars. Everybody, pack up your cars, move to Curtis, Nebraska, right this very second. That's the cheapest vodka soda you're ever going to find in America. Three dollars. That's right. For twenty bucks, you can drink vodka soda till you float. Oh my gosh! You know how? I see. I live in the Los Angeles area. You know what that costs? Vodka soda there is at least twelve dollars. If it's a Tito's, do you charge more if it's Tito's? A little more. So like three <laughs> fifty.
3: I think it might be four.
0: Four dollars for top shelf. Well, thank you very very much letting us do the podcast here this is more of a a different style serious podcast because we're talking about one of the true heinous crimes in Nebraska criminal history that took
3: place here in Frontier County have you heard about the Hoyt case yeah absolutely I was I was a young boy here when uh when all that was going on right um, probably five or six years old yeah, too young to really understand what was going on, but old enough to know that uh, the local people were pretty terrified. Sure, and even today, it's a fascinating case, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, very. Yeah,
0: because you don't know what what were these people thinking that led them into this, you know, deadly end. But uh, we'll talk more about that with the former Frontier County Sheriff Lanny Rob Lee. Is Lanny ever come in here? Oh yeah. How Absolutely. many vodka sodas does he throw down?
3: I wouldn't tell. You wouldn't tell. It no, must no. be a lot. No, that's that's the bartender code. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, everybody, I'm telling you,
0: you got to come to the Anvil Bar and Grill, Curtis, Nebraska. Population nine thirty nine. Three dollar vodka sodas. All right, that wraps up another episode of Across the Diniverse. A huge thank you to Lanny Rob Lee university of nebraska professor dr mario scalora and the contributions of mr james hewitt who wrote a book about the hoyt murders called in cold storage and that is a clue on what else i'll be revealing on a future episode in cold storage is available from the university of nebraska press on amazon mr hewitt also provided official case files and taped interviews for this true crime presentation I'll be posting crime photos and transcripts of this Hoyt case on my Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Dynaverse. Theme music provided by Keith Brock and the Kings Who Rock. Across the Dynaverse, always searching for the heart and soul of America, one diner at a time. What's your story?